Mac Power Users, episode 402, Home Automation with Robert Spivak. Welcome back to the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside my pal, David Sparks. You're a little under the weather today, David. How are you? I'm good, Katie. I, I've got a cold or something. I'm kind of a mess. I, I'm I'm highly medicated. So let's just see what happens. That could make for an interesting show. Yeah, just everything's unhinged here. But uh, I think I'll be fine. I feel right. a lot better today than I did this, this afternoon than I did this morning. So that's good. <laughs> that's progress. Heading in the right direction. Uh, we also want to uh, welcome to Mac Power Users, a longtime listener, first time caller, I guess, as they, they say. Uh, welcome, Robert, Robert Spivak. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, we've been in correspondence for a long time. You've always written in some with some thoughtful comments and feedback about the show. And you've always had some insightful things to say. But I guess I did not realize until you actually chimed up that you make your living doing home automation installs for people. That's right. I really got into it by accident, and it's become my full-time gig at this point. I just want to say that, Robert, um, we actually, you were a guest we spent a long time looking for because uh, we've talked about home automation and our own experiences with it. And and Katie and I are like blind hogs looking for an acorn, you know, but the, uh, but we've had some experiences. But then every time I got a hold of a, a home automation expert, because there's guys out there uh, like you, uh, and I start talking to them, what are you? What do you spend your time doing? They all spend their time installing like fifty thousand dollar systems in very rich people's homes, which is of almost no interest to ninety nine percent of our audience. Um, but you are a special, uh, unique uh, snowflake here because you are a guy who does home automation, but you spend a lot of time with consumer grade and prosumer stuff that is definitely in the wheelhouse of affordability for people. And, um, and you, you know, you go to the conferences, you're a member of the, what is the name of that group of home automation experts? I forget. They have a special name. It's uh, the CEDIA, C-E-D-I-A, the Consumer Custom Electronics Design Installation Association. Yeah. So, I mean, you are like in this stuff deep, but you're not in the stuff at the super, super high end where your information is almost useless to our audience. So uh, we are so happy to have found you and that you were willing to come on and talk to us a little bit about, you know, where home automation stuff is today, uh, what works, what doesn't work and and what things people can be doing right now. And David, I will tell you, I was at the uh, MacTrack legal conference this past weekend at Disney World. And the best of the Disney parks, as you know. And I I was sitting at breakfast with a bunch of people. And they said, you know, Katie, Mac Power users should have a disclaimer at the top of each episode that says, you know, this episode, you know, kind of like the calorie content. And when you're eating a cookie, it says on the back of the cookie how many calories you got. It says this episode of Mac Power users will cost you an estimated, you know, blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, this could be an expensive one. It could be, but, it, but it won't. But what we're saying is it won't be fifty thousand dollars, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Exactly. And and honestly, one of the things I learned talking to Robert is, in a lot of ways, the consumer stuff is better at this point because it's made for more people and it has more engineering behind it. There's a mixture of quality and there's really a revolution going on where the industry is changing from the custom solutions to working with the mass market consumer products. And it's catching a lot of people off guard. There's a lot of adjustment going on. But that's what excited me is being able to bring some of the high-end capabilities to regular folk. And more importantly, you can do it step by step. Most high-end systems are all or nothing. 
Whereas with the consumer products and the prosumer, you can pick and choose just what you care about and start small. Yeah. So, so Robert's business is doitformesolutions.com. And Robert's a Cornell trained engineer who, like I said, pays for his shoes, helping people automate their homes um, in the Bay Area and, and really beyond. You were kind of, you have a pretty far reach at this point. Um, so, so tell us, how did you first get involved, you know, going from engineer to home automation guy? Well, I've been independent for a while. I was doing consulting. I did web hosting for a while, and I got involved with Max more and more, starting with an iPad and discovering your podcast and slowly moving over from PCs to all Mac. And home automation had always been a bit of a hobby. I was tinkering and playing. And when I realized that you could combine the two Mac computers, the ease of use, the beautiful user interface to make it less techy, less nerdy. I just get started working there and it just bloomed into a business where I help other people do it for them when they want the help. And from there, you got all your training through Cydia. And like I, I remember speaking with you in the last month, you were down in San Diego attending the, I guess it was the national trade show for, for home automation stuff. Yes, I, I work with, a, my business is a little different and I don't sell the products. I focus entirely on just selling my skills either by the a project or sometimes by the hour, but mostly by the project. So I sign up with a lot of vendors and manufacturers only for the technical training and the closer support relationships, not for the discounts, the promos, all the backdoor deals that really uh, color the products that a lot of other dealers may be pushing at you. So who is kind of your typical client? I mean, do you get referrals from big box stores or from individuals or, I mean, what do people come to you looking for? Uh, mostly really problem driven people that have a need. They want typically better lighting control or more security, or sometimes it's an offshoot of just helping them with their networks. I've done a lot of work with Wi-Fi networks and expanding them, streamlining them, managing them. So I'm with a client helping them organize their network to say, you know, it sure would be nice if I could do X, Y, Z. And we start talking and then we put in a system for lighting control or remote security or remote access. So typically word of mouth referral and need-based interest. It's interesting because we're at this nexus now. I remember the first time I saw a really good implementation of home automation was some interview that they did of, of Bill Gates at some point where they were walking around with his fancy house in, uh, in Washington, and it was super wired. I mean, he walked in the room and the blinds opened and the lights turned on, and it, it was very Star Trek and very impressive. But, I, you know, it was Bill Gates, the richest guy in the world, so of course it would be. Um, but it feels to me like we're kind of at this point now where this isn't something that you have to be Bill Gates to put something interesting together. Well, the great change is there are great products now, whether it's Nest thermostats or Lutron lights or Amazon Alexa. A lot of people are successful enough, not technical enough to say, I want those products, but I don't want to bother actually installing it. I don't want to be on tech support for three hours. I don't want to be on the forums to figure out the tweaks to make it work. So could you do it for me? I don't want to go spend fifty or a hundred thousand dollars and have a whole army of people come in and do my house top to bottom. It's a bit overkill or it's beyond their budget, but they don't want to tinker until three in the morning getting everything working. 
So that's the middle ground that's emerged, and it's it's being called the do-it-for-me movement, if you will. And I think I've latched in at the right time. And that's how you have doitformesolutions.com. Exactly. <laughs> so um, let's look at this kind of macro before we get started. Um, one of the things you and I were talking about the other day is, you know, is this the time for people to start dipping their toes in home automation? It's still really an early adopter phase. The type of personality, you have to have a DIY mindset if you're going to get in at the DIY level, do it yourself. You have to be willing to consider things you buy now may need to be replaced pretty early. You may be experimenting. You, you can tear your hair out once in a while. You might have family members being treated like guinea pigs. So you have to have that personality. If you're a get off my lawn, it's got to work perfectly or I never want to deal with it. It might not yet be the right time. I guess I feel like we're ripe to make mistakes. I mean, those of us who have been in the home automation landscape for the last year or couple of years have seen, you know, maybe things aren't working so well together. There, there have been whole, you know, sets of products that have come and gone and and left people stranded. Is now the time to start getting into this or, or do people still want to hold off a while before making a significant investment? Well, we're now seeing a lot of attention from the big guys. Apple has been very active, of course, with HomeKit. Google has finally gotten into the game with Google Home and Google Assistant. Microsoft's doing some things in the background. So the big guys are interested. The technology has come there. The prices have come down. So it's still an early phase, but it's it's converging rather than diverging. There are still small companies that are being bought up just a few weeks ago. August locks, the make of the August lock and the August doorbell camera. They were just acquired by the largest lock company in a European country. So there's still companies being bought. Uh, Wink, which was very popular, actually just got bought by Will I Am, the pop singer, rock singer. So you're going to see companies come and go. But the basic technologies, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, they're stabilizing, and there's less of a chance of you're going to be completely abandoned. Yeah, we had, um, I asked about this in the Facebook group, and one of the questions, one of the listeners, there's so many replies, I can't find it now, but he basically said, how do I get started on this without my wife thinking I'm insane? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, and I understand that. I, I think maybe the answer to the question is, uh, it is early days, but the stuff is getting a lot easier and it's getting a lot more fun to do. Uh, I have a little war story we're going to tell through the show how uh, home automation is now clicking with my family. So I think it's possible. But I also do think there's a risk. Anything you buy now is not necessarily going to be the same thing you're using for 20 years because I just don't think it's that settled yet. Well, the good news is most of the products now, the products themselves, they're 50 or $100 each, maybe $200, $300 at the most. They're not $1,000, $5,000 investments. So for most of us that are shelling out for Mac hardware and Mac products anyways, it's not overly expensive. That makes me feel a lot better about the, the box of unused Hue bulbs in my garage right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's talk about maybe where people should start if they haven't dipped their toe yet in the home automation water or, or maybe if they want to revise some things. Uh, so let's get down to basics. Where do you start with all this? 
Well, the first thing I always recommend is to take a look at your network because ultimately everything is dependent on the network in your house, typically your Wi-Fi network or wired network. So you really want a very, very solid network. Otherwise, you're building on top of that, you're going to have more problems. And there's two areas to look at. One is wired versus Wi-Fi. And I, I'm still a strong believer in running wires as in Ethernet cables everywhere you can as much as possible to everything and only use Wi-Fi for transient use with laptops or, or mobile devices that can't be wired. And the second area is to look hard at your router. It's interesting. We hear a lot about Eero and Synology and other routers, but the statistic says that 70 to 80 percent of the average consumer gets their Wi-Fi and their router from their cable or satellite or internet company. So there's a lot of room for getting rid of your Comcast or other generic Wi-Fi router and getting something decent that works. I mean, they aren't necessarily bad devices, but I've yet to have, uh, you know, when I had the option from my cable provider, when I was having some trouble, the guy said, well, well, I can put a new, you know, router in and we'll, we'll put, the, then you can have a wireless network. I was like, oh, n no, thank you, please. No, don't put a new modem in that has one of those combo things. I'll just, just give me your, your plain basic vanilla modem. Um, my personal experience has been those aren't necessarily the best devices for people. I, I certainly agree. That, and there's less configurability and less advanced control. One of the things I recommend that isn't obvious is people are afraid of wires. If they don't have an Ethernet cable, I guess hiring an electrician or a handyman to run an Ethernet cable is like traveling to Mars. I strongly suggest instead of spending four or $500 on a brand new mesh Wi-Fi system, spend a hundred bucks and get the electrician to run a wire to the other part of the house and then buy an inexpensive Wi-Fi system. You can upgrade the Wi-Fi later, but that wire is going to be there forever and give you a lot more flexibility in reaching throughout your home and getting a better signal everywhere. Yeah, and, and while it's probably complete overkill, um, one of the things that I did when I when I recently just bought this house is, is I had every room, multiple drops, I mean, just a complete head-to-toe wiring package done. And I was in and out of that for less than fifteen hundred dollars, and I and that's a that's a big investment to make, but you certainly don't have to go that big as big as I did. I mean, you can certainly you know get a couple of wires run to a couple of couple of locations in your house and have a couple of drops a lot less expensively than that. And it really pays off because one of the hidden things going on is there's a new national home builder that's building only wireless homes. They're no longer putting even coax for TV in every room. They're only running two ethernets in the whole house and it's called Wi-Fi certified home. The problem is it might work perfectly, but then your neighbor moves in, puts in a strong Wi-Fi router and now your perfectly tuned Wi-Fi network stops working. Radios have external influence. You cannot control the what other people do, no matter how great you are in tuning and adjusting and finding the right spot for your Wi-Fi repeaters. External factors can ruin your network. Yeah, and you're not going to have, if you want to go the automation route, one of the most important things is that you have immediate response. Um, we were having trouble with the hue bulbs where you'd push the button and there was a noticeable delay. They would turn off and on, but there was a noticeable delay. And like, like people are asking Facebook, how do you do it without your wife thinking you're insane? Is you do it in a way where it's immediate. 
where when they try to use it, it always works. And that quite often is reliant on that backbone, that network in your house. So if you don't have a good foundation underneath home automation, which in, in this case is the, the network itself, um, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, everything's gonna, gonna be crippled. Yes, there are most, a lot of products require a hub or a bridge. Some have Wi-Fi. Most of them always have Ethernet. Pay attention to those types of devices and try to connect them on Ethernet wired, not on Wi-Fi. Also, most of the radio technologies, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, Zigbee, Z-Wave, they all operate in the same frequency band, the 2.4 gigahertz band. So even though those devices send very little data, most of the time, when they do need to send data, it has to be fast and without interference. There are some networking systems, some devices that don't operate in that band, and that makes a big difference in performance and reliability. Lutron is one. The, it's a word that people don't like, proprietary. I like to say vendor-specific. Lutron's wireless switches and lighting controls work in a different frequency that's a licensed radio band, it's completely clear of all your Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and other devices. Well, I was going to ask you, I was having problems when I moved into my new house with my Hue bulbs. And I've just, because I created this new networking closet, I was just throwing everything on the shelf in this closet. I had my Wi-Fi router up there. I had my Hue bulb, um, you know, little hub up there. And, and now it seems all of our HomeKit compatible devices now require these little hubs that that are the little dongles that come now off of our our network. I think Wemo is going to require one when their new device comes out. Um, my garage door opener just came out with one. Am I doing myself a disservice by having all those little hubs and dongles in the same closet? Uh, are are they just uh, interfering with each other? You want to make sure they're separated by a little bit of space if they're using a radio and. If they're bridging or converting between one system and another, between Ethernet and Bluetooth or Ethernet and Z-Wave or Zigbee, then there's radio transmission going on. Hue bulbs are on a radio system called Zigbee, which is a standard. A lot of other products, Bluetooth, are on another radio standard. So it's good to spread it out and avoid that interference, especially when they're on wired Ethernet. You want those radios central to your home. And where your hub is or router may not be physically the central place. It may be towards the side where your cable or internet comes into the house. So you want these radios to be more in the middle floor or top floor or the central part of the house to radio waves go out in like a sphere. So you want that sphere to reach as much as possible throughout your home. It is crazy how many of these hubs you collect if you start getting into this stuff. Well, one thing to keep in mind is. A lot of these systems, you need one hub for one device or many devices. If you just buy one light bulb or one light switch and you need the hub to go along with it, it seems annoying. Why do I have to buy two things? But when you realize that one hub can control 50 or 100 switches or lights, and then the cost per light or switch is lower, your real cost of ownership goes down when you grow beyond one or two devices. There's a big difference between playing with just two or three little devices and actually building an entire room or entire house. Yeah, like some light bulbs have the the communication element built into the light bulb. 
and you don't need a hub. But that means every light bulb you buy using that system has to have that same commu- communication paraphernalia in it, which may- raises the price. And it definitely adds up if you start adding more. And one thing to keep in mind is the devices that are Wi-Fi based, which have that communication controller in the device, but don't need a hub. Wi-Fi takes up one spot on your router, and most consumer routers are limited to what's called a Class C address, which is 255 devices. One is taken up by the router, one is taken up by the broadcast address. So you can only put 254 devices, computers, laptops, iPads, iPhones, and home automation devices. Once you go past that, you need more advanced routing and configuration. And we might see a tipping point when we get there when a lot of home networks will need a lot of work to be redesigned around that limit. When you use Zigbee, Z-Wave, these other technologies going through a bridge, the bridge is one device on your Wi-Fi network and all the other devices are hidden from your main network, which also helps in, in security by restricting access to those devices. All right, so the first step is build a good Wi-Fi network and and wired and Wi-Fi network, I guess is the word. Yes. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. 1Password saves you time and makes you more secure by filling in logins, shopping carts, and long forms with a single tap or click. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off. I have to admit this is an ad spot I've been anxious to share with you. Now that iOS 11 is here, 1Password for iPod got drag and drop support, which is kind of awesome. 1Password has always made it easy to fill in passwords on the iPad or iPhone with every existing tool they can get their hands on. And of course, they jumped all over drag and drop. So now if you're on your iPad and you want to log into a website, just open up 1Password on the right or the left side of the screen. Once you're there, go to your desired login and you can drag your password straight from 1Password into the password field in the Safari field. This also works for the username. Just drag and drop and you're all good. This is so much faster than copying and pasting. Another new iOS 11 feature is the ability to copy contacts into 1Password. There are several reasons why you may want to do that. Uh, Maybe you're friends with a bunch of movie stars. I am, personally. I have a lot of movie star friends, so I put all of their contacts in 1Password. But I also put in things there that I want all of my family to access. Because we have a family account and we have these shared vaults, uh, I can put uh, information in there concerning doctors and other emergency contacts in 1Password, and now I know everybody has the most current information at all times. Either way, make sure to get yourself a copy of 1Password. It's the best way to manage your passwords on your iPhone, iPad, and Mac. It's both easy and secure and made by a group of people that do nothing but obsess over your security. You can't go wrong with it. Head over to onepasswordcom MPU, and that's in all caps, and you'll get 20% off your 1Password plan. Thanks again to 1Password for all of their support of the Mac Power users and keeping the bad guys out of my stuff. All right, so we've we've got our home automation, uh, we've got our home Wi-Fi network built. Um, wh- what is the, you know, what is the next step we look at? What types of products should we be looking at for for these devices? Where do people generally start? 
people usually start two ways. They start by getting excited about a specific product. And the best example of this was the Nest thermostat. Everyone just loved the way they looked and they wanted it. They didn't know why, but they looked cool. They wanted it. I recommend starting from a problem. In other words, pick something that annoys you or bothers you and it's really inconvenient. It may be as simple as I don't want to get out of my chair when I'm settled down to watch a movie and I've got a drink in one hand and some chips in the other and I want to change the light setting or I want to turn the music volume up or down. Find something that's annoying enough that, you know, I'd spend 50 bucks or 100 bucks so I wouldn't have to be annoyed anymore. Or uh, a good one, uh, talking to the people in the Facebook group to to convince your significant other is, wouldn't it be nice if we came home at night and we could have the lights on at the doorstep? Absolutely. The, the most popular areas of getting started is lighting control, home security. Those are the top two. And then heating and air conditioning, which is basically your thermostats. That's the most popular gadgets and areas that people want to get started with. Now, there's some some ecosystems that are now starting to take root, you know. Uh, when this all started, I think a lot of us were hoping there would just be one ecosystem, that there would be some standard, that everybody would use the same standard. But, of course, that's not the way it works. <laughs> um, so as we sit here, we've got Apple's HomeKit. Uh, Amazon is starting to kind of build its own ecosystem around the stuff that works with the Echo. Uh, there was a there was a service called Smart Things for a while that I believe has been bought by Samsung now. Yes, Smart Things is is a very popular system also, and Samsung has subsumed it. Originally, they put it into a few TVs, but they're now moving it into a Wi-Fi router that they just came out with. So that's still very popular and widely used, and does a good job. What other ecosystems have I missed here? Google has built an ecosystem with Nest with what they call Google Home and Google Home Assistant. That's another big one. And it seems like the box stores have them. Like I, I see when I go to Lowe's and Home Depot and even the office supply stores, they're they're pushing their own system that I've never really paid attention to. Lowe's has a system called Iris, which was very popular. It's, start, it's slowed down in, in growth now. Uh, Staples had a system called Staples Connect, which they discontinued and abandoned so they left a bad taste with people there. And they, they're they also each of the big box stores. Best Buy was starting to do something, but they've moved to support more of the big brands and branded products rather than developing their own private label offering. The other big guy that's involved here that flies under the radar are the security companies and the cable companies, Comcast and the others. They have turnkey home automation and home security systems that they're offering. I noticed in my neighbor's yard recently, a sign just went up from our local cable provider saying that this was a uh, Cox smart home. And um, I can't even imagine what their cable bill is, but I'm sure that they've got, you know, the cameras and the the toaster and all of the other things installed by the cable company. And that worries me a little bit because I don't know, are, are they using, are they just installing, um, you know, proprietary technology or are they installing third-party products that all work with their system they're sourcing third-party products in most cases that they brand and support and tie in so their call centers and installers know how to work with so it can be a reasonable approach if you just want to hands-off completely do it for me at a moderate price rather than the traditional 
full-time security companies that were, have been doing that. So where does somebody start? I mean, if you're listening to Mac Power users and you're thinking, well, I'd like to do this, but just the fact that you just told me about seven different ecosystems makes me think I may just sit it out for another year or two. Yeah. I mean, because my big concern would be, how do I know whatever I buy today is going to work next week? What I recommend is first, most important is what is your own environment? Because if you can eliminate things that you don't need or eliminate or list things you need, it restricts the choices quite a bit. For example, the biggest issue right now is multi-platform. Are you an all Apple home or do you have Apple? Do you have some Android with your kids and others? Do you need multi-platform support? Do you need to work with different brands of phones, different tablets, different computers, PCs, and Macs? So that will dictate your choices in one direction. If you're all Apple, that makes it easier and simpler in another direction. So once you narrow down the matrix of products you need to support, then again, you want to look at what capabilities, what's most important to you, lighting, security, uh, heating and air conditioning, uh, audio visual, meaning your stereo, your, your uh, game stations, etc., and you can start to map out where you want the automation. Once you know that, then you can look at compatibility with which ecosystem. Now, the good thing is we're starting to see products at the hardware level that work with multiple systems. There are a few products that are HomeKit compatible, but they also work standalone with apps from the manufacturer on other platforms. So if you buy some of the HomeKit gear, you can still operate it from Android or from the web or from third-party systems. So in that sense, you're starting to see investment protection. What you buy can work with what you're using now and what you might move to later in the future. Yeah, I think that's a real benefit at this time when everything's so fluid. And and even you know, we talked last week about, you know, the voice in a can stuff, but uh, that is very much evolving too. So you may find out that, well, no, I really like the Amazon Echo. So even though I have all Apple products, I still want it to have Amazon Echo support because I'm going to be going deep into that in the next couple of years as they get better. So uh, giving yourself options is good. Like that's why I know one, one of Katie, that's one of your your um, requirements that anything you buy works with both Amazon Echo and, and HomeKit. Well, I will say it's one of my preferences because it's it doesn't seem to be a, a a requirement that is realistic yet. I mean, right now, I have stuff from all the major vendors in my platform. the The big thing is I I, I seem to be collecting a lot of Nest products, um, and I don't know that those are ever going to be HomeKit compatible, given the holy war between Apple and Google. I don't hold out a lot of hope for Nest playing well with others. They really want to be a standard and platform unto themselves. But in terms of most, they do work very well with Alexa and they integrate with lots of products as long as Nest is the center of the universe. They have a lot of connectivity. So virtually everything you can buy has a special case of supporting Nest, which is a good thing. Other than, you know, Apple's HomeKit itself, but you can add Nest to Alexa, you can add Nest to a lot of other things. What I see voice, and whether it's Alexa, whether it's Siri, whether it's Cortana or other things, I view voice as a extra layer across anything else that you do. I don't recommend choosing a voice-centric solution to start with. Now, that's particularly important now that Amazon just came out with a new version of the Echo that has a home automation 
radio in it. The new version of Echo, the plus version, includes a Zigbee radio so it can directly control hue bulbs and, and about 20 or 30 other products without a hub or a bridge or anything else. So they're angling to be the main controller, not just the voice controller. Now, step back for a minute and explain that, because I saw that that came out and I just wasn't quite clear what Amazon was doing with that. So if if I buy the Echo Plus and I have no other home automation gear, or maybe I do, but is that what is that going to replace for me? Is that going to replace my Hue hub? Is that going to replace my SmartThings hub? What is that going to do for me that I couldn't have done otherwise? In a short, short answer, yes, if you have the right gear. If you have a list of products that matches the 20 or 30 or 50 that they've certified, you can operate those products without the hub that you would normally need. So you can operate a Hue bulb without a hub. What that means is if you're just getting started and you only buy the Alexa, you can now just buy these other products without buying the hubs that go with them. Robert, I'm going to ask you, just make sure you say Amazon Echo. If you keep using the A word, people at home oh, are going to start throwing their iPhone through the window. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got mine on mute. Sorry. <laughs> but the Echo. So they've basically taken the Amazon Echo and smashed a Hue Hub into it. And, and with, uh, more specifically, uh, and we were going to get to this in a minute, but there's different... Um, radio formats there's and one of them is zigbee which is an open standard that happens to be what hue uses for their light bulbs so that's not just the hue hub it's a zigbee um, radio which allows you to anything that works with the zigbee standard would theoretically work with this device without you having to get another hub well there there are two popular radio standards for devices device specific one is zigbee which is used by Hue and most light bulbs, most smart lighting uses Zigbee. It's also used in commercial building automation. It's also used actually in the remote controls for your TV, but that's not open to anything else. So there's millions and millions of Zigbee deployed. The other widely used product is Z-Wave. Z-Wave tends to be used in smart locks and in alarm systems. Most of the wireless alarm systems and kits all use Z-Wave. Both of these products claim protocols claim their standard, but there are many flavors of them. So it really comes down to a list of what's certified by the system. So you have to go to the Amazon list and say, these Zigbee products are usable. Or if you have a SmartThings or another Z-Wave hub, you have to go to their list and see which Z-Wave products are approved by that manufacturer. There is some mix and match, but not 100%. And then the other thing that I've been more, more, um, paying more attention to as I expand is the Wi-Fi versus Bluetooth. Cause a lot of the home kit stuff is either Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, which is a kind of another distinction. Well, I, I would, I tend to avoid Bluetooth because right now Bluetooth is still going through an evolution. Its range is short. There is a new spec for what's called Bluetooth mesh, which will create a mesh network. So the Bluetooth will talk to each other and extend the range throughout your home. That's not available yet. It might require hardware changes. It might require firmware changes. So anything you buy Bluetooth today, it, it may be short term. It is HomeKit compatible. In the HomeKit arena, you see mostly Wi-Fi and Bluetooth devices. You don't see any of the other products and that partly may be due to the MFI certification restrictions on the Apple side. 
but a good thing, a good tip about HomeKit and Bluetooth is it's sort of a hidden command, but you could turn your iPad into a Bluetooth repeater. So if you go into your iPad into the HomeKit section and say, use it as a hub for HomeKit, it becomes a repeater. So if you have a bunch of iPads throughout your home, they will actually repeat the Bluetooth signal and let you have extended range on using Bluetooth devices in your home with HomeKit. Yeah, I've been experimenting a lot with HomeKit products the last couple of months, knowing we were coming into the show. And I tried two different switches, in-wall switches that were Bluetooth-based, and neither one of them gave acceptable performance. I didn't use my iPad as a repeater. And frankly, I don't think a system that relies on you using an iPad as a repeater is not a very good system anyway. But the um, but my takeaway from all of this is if you're going to go the HomeKit route and it says Bluetooth on the box, then you need to move on because I, I just have not had a good experience with that, whereas the Wi-Fi stuff has been rock solid. Now, remember, though, some of the door and window sensors are Bluetooth also. So even though you're not using it in the wall, you might end up with Bluetooth if some of the Eve products, Elgato they're all Bluetooth based. That's a good point. Then I do I do have some Bluetooth in that works. <laughs> that the uh, this, the the Bluetooth switches, uh, internal switches were terrible. I could not get those things to. I mean they they uh, they exhibited Bluetooth tendencies where they would sometimes connect and sometimes they wouldn't, <laughs> which is not good. Well, with a switch, remember it's a radio at the end of the day, and you're putting a sealed box inside your wall, so you're making it a lot harder for that radio signal to penetrate. Next to a bunch of electric wires on top of it all. <laughs> all right. Um, what you know? What are the things you talked to me about that I had never thought about when setting up one of these systems? Is the idea of the monoculture challenge? Explain that to the listeners. Sure. Uh, one of the th this is really interesting because we haven't seen it as much. We've gotten past it with PCs and with phones and tablets, but most personal computing is personal, one device, one person. In a home automation environment, you're inherently multi-user. Unless you're a bachelor living alone, there's multiple people in the household. They may or may not have the same devices. And even if you are an all Apple or an all Android household, you have visitors, you have Service providers, dog walkers, babysitters, they come into your home. You may have an Airbnb situation where you're renting it out, and you cannot dictate that everyone use the same technology. So, Robert just described why I'm still single, because I can control everything <laughs> in my home. No, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so I can see Katie. Katie yeah. <laughs> I've got a checklist. I need to know exactly what, what products and, and what um, uh, what technologies you support. Yeah. On the second date, exactly how much do you like that Android phone? <laughs> well, especially family or visitors uh, can still be an issue. So catering to that desire to have everything work across a multi-platform is more challenging, and there's several ways to attack the problem. One way I like to attack the problem, and we've talked about it, is voice control. Layering voice, speaking into the air. It, it could be an all-home-kit home, but a visitor can learn those magic Siri commands and speak them. They don't need an iPhone. They don't need your iCloud password. They don't need the apps, and they can still do the basics. They can turn lights on and off. They can do the things a casual user might need to do. Yeah, and that's one of the big use, that's one of the big sells for the Amazon Echo, frankly, is how easy it makes that. So if you layer 
the Amazon Echo on top of HomeKit products, then you get the best of both. You get everything the way you want on your screens, but you get voice control that's universal with multiple platforms. The other third aspect, I call it sort of the triple play, is to introduce physical controls, physical remote controls, switches, keypads, buttons. It's a little more expensive and some people feel that home automation is designed to avoid buying all these little gadgets. But a physical button that you just push the button and the light goes on transcends all these issues of platform and ecosystems. You push the button, the light goes on. You don't say, is it a, a HomeKit button or is it an Alexa button? It's just a button. You push it, it does its thing. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Clean My Mac 3 from MacPaw. Find out more by heading over to cleanmymac.com or setapp.com. Well, it is that time of the year again. It is macOS upgrade season. And how many of you have upgraded to macOS High Sierra? I just flipped the switch and upgraded all my devices, and it went pretty smoothly. And one of the most important things we talk about doing before you upgrade to High Sierra is to make sure your Mac is not stuffed with unnecessary files. And that's what Clean My Mac 3 is all about. With just a few clicks, you can scan your whole system and remove all the clutter and including system junk, old caches, app leftovers, hidden files, and more. And then your Mac will run High Sierra like a dream, making it clear why Clean My Mac 3 should be an essential part of your Mac's toolkit. Clean My Mac 3 is incredibly easy to use. Everything is removed safely and easily, giving you much more disk space, more speed, and an easy way to monitor the health of your system. Clean My Mac 3 is available either as a standalone purchase or via setup. That's the new subscription service from MacPaw, which includes 95 other great apps as part of their subscription. Unfortunately, some of these app cleaners have gotten a bad name because of some less reputable players in the companies, but I want you to know Clean My Mac 3 and the folks at MacPaw are the real deal. I use it on my system and I recommend it to my friends and family. You can find out more today by heading over to cleanmymac.com or setapp.com. And thank you to MacPaw for their kind support of this show and Relay FM. So Robert, I uh so I went in with the hue bulbs to begin with. I mean they when they, especially when they started lowering the price to the white ones where it was fairly reasonable to buy them. And I started putting them in all the fixtures in the house, even in the built-in uh, ceiling uh, housings, you know, they have the, I forget it was the CF30, I forget what they call that, but there's the bigger a, ones, the, the bigger bulbs. Yeah, the big ones. The BR30s, the floodlights. I knew there was a 30 in there. And it, it brought me nothing but pain and suffering because uh, we would have, um, you know, the switch has to be turned on for it to work. You know, it has to have electricity running into the light. Like, you know, if you're going to put a home automation light bulb in your house and you're going to tell your wife, who has been married to you almost, you know, 25 years and, and, and is used to your shenanigans uh, that, hey, this is going to be great. We're going to have all this automation stuff and it doesn't work half the time because somebody flipped a switch. Uh, that's no fun. And and so that was a problem. And then I started buying. Uh, so then I started putting tape over the switches, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then I started buying uh, Hue sells these Hue in wall dimmers where uh, not in wall. They're they're just dimmer switches that you can stick to the wall next to the switch. And I got some of those and they were, you know, they were great when they worked, but they were not consistent. Um, you know, sometimes you'd push the button and the lights would go on and sometimes it wouldn't. 
or it would come on five seconds later. And it was just this constant battle. And then, of course, it doesn't matter if you put tape on the wall switches. The kids know that they just, you know, toggle the switch a few times. It'll make the lights go on. So it was just a it was one of these things where they put up with dad's insanity. And I was talking to you about this, I don't know, three or four months ago. And you suggested, hey, why don't you look at some of these in-wall switches? And you recommended to me the Lutron Cassettas. Yes, I, I want to talk about these switches because these have been recommended to me too. Keep going, David. Yeah, so I so I bought a couple of them. And so the way this works is you uh, it, it comes with its own hub. It's a Wi-Fi home kit device, but I believe it supports Amazon Echo as well. Um, in fact, I'm almost certain I've set up rules with my Echo to turn lights off and on with it. But the... Um, but I'll tell you why I don't really know for sure because because I've been using HomeKit with it. Um, uh, but but then you know it's a thing where you got to turn off the power and take the switch out of the wall. So I put the first one in, and um, and it worked great. I mean, you turn it on, you press the button in the wall, and it turns off, and you push the other button and it turns off. You know, on and they've got dimmer switches in them incorporated into them as well. But it, the very first switch I put in the house, the family was cool with it because they all knew they could turn the switch on or off and it would work immediately. And I didn't know why until you had said earlier in the show today, Lutron bought their own bandwidth. They bought their own radio frequency in essence. And this thing is just rock solid. Um, so that's, I guess I have more to say about this, but just, just as a starting point, I, I thought that was an interesting development for me in, in terms of this home automation stuff. Uh, totally. Lutron has actually done a phenomenal job coming from the traditional lighting industry, moving into this arena. The Lutron product, the Cassetta, is HomeKit compatible. It's also going to be Google Home compatible, and it is also Amazon Echo compatible. So as a hardware, it talks to the three major ecosystems. It is a retrofit situation. It works without a neutral wire, where if you've done any home wiring, you know that Modern houses have that third wire, that white neutral wire. Older homes don't. And the Cassetta system will work without that neutral wire being there, so it's very flexible. A little fun fact I like I just learned recently is Lutron is a family-owned company. They're privately held, but they're rumored, because they're not public, to have over a half a billion dollars in sales. And the founder of the company invented the modern dimmer. So the company knows lighting, they know dimmers, they do a lot of commercial industrial lighting. They're not a fly-by-night Johnny-come-lately to this business. They dominate. They're one of the leading lighting and lighting controls company. Until Cassetta, their technology was only available in those quote-unquote high-end thirty to $50,000 systems. And so they brought a portion of that technology down into a DIY home kit product that you can set up yourself. Okay. So, and so the first one I did was the outdoor uh, front porch light. You know, it's a simple light. There's one, there's one switch controlling one light. It's the easiest switch deal you can do. And then I got, you know, I started getting cocky. So I bought um, additional set and, you know, we have three way switches in our house. So the next light I wanted to tackle was the the stairwell light, you know, the light that when you go down to get a drink of water in the middle of the night or when you come home at night, it turns on. And it's got a switch at the top of the stairs and the bottom stairs, like a lot of people in the show has the same thing. And for Lutron Cassetta, the way they do that is you wire one switch and then you go to the other switch and you close it off. You just literally 
you you um wire net all the wires together so the switch is permanently open on the other end and then you put in a what they call a pico a little remote in there and i had a lot of doubts about this having come off this whole heat thing <laughs> yes. right and i'm like and it worked like a charm and the pico remote fits right in the wall switch so you can't even tell something is different uh to my family they don't know that one is a permanently closed wiring and the other one is you know the switch but that worked just as well and just as fast. And and that has led to an explosion of Lutron in the Sparks home. So uh, it's like my, uh, you know, because I'm a geek. I got, you know, every month I do a little something fun for myself. And lately I go spend another 50 bucks on some more switches for Lutron. And I, I haven't completely uh, replaced all of them in the house yet. But by the end of the year or early next year, I'm going to have them everywhere. And these things are just super solid. I mean, you push the button, they turn on. And the interesting thing for me in doing this is the entire family is now completely down with it. You know, they like it um, because they're HomeKit based. Um, I taught everyone with iOS 11 how you swipe up into Control Center and there's a HomeKit button there. And, you know, we save as favorites the main the main rigs, you know, where like you can say, uh, you know, turn on the lights when you're coming home or turn on the lights in the kitchen. There's one to turn off all the downstairs lights. You, you always know you get in bed and you leave one on downstairs. So you press a button. And um, it's interesting to me because uh, the the only thing, the only home automation stuff my wife and, and girls ever really took off on was the Nest because the idea of turning the air conditioner on in Southern California is a great idea. And now all of a sudden they're all in with these these lights. And it, it was just remarkable to me how changing the underlying technology just made, was night and day for us in terms of our ability to use and enjoy this stuff. Now, I want to talk about the actual device itself. So the, the Lutron Cassetta system, because David, I've been looking at this too, because ever since I put out the call a couple of episodes ago and said, hey, I'm looking for something that is both Amazon Echo and HomeKit workable, this seems to be the only solution for that. So you have to buy a starter kit is my understanding. And, and Robert, correct me if I'm wrong, but the starter kit has like two wall switches and a hub. And then it has these two remotes, which I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with. I mean, is that the only way to get into this? I mean, I just want basic wall switches that work with, with my my Echo and, and work with a HomeKit. They they actually have several different starter kits. Some they have starter kits with just lamp modules that plug in externally without any in wall wiring, and they have some starter kits that have the in wall switch, and they have some bigger kits that include the little Pico remotes and some that don't. So there's a lot of variety. You can buy everything a la carte. You can buy just the starter hub and then just buy the individual switches and remotes. It depends on really what you're trying to do, and then you just price it out and see which is the best way to buy it. You won't find all the features, all the modules at your big box store, so you, you'll want to figure out what you need and then go looking for them. They also come in different colors for designer reasons, and some of the colors are typically not stocked at the big box stores. So again, although it is an end-user retail product, you may want to a look for more of a commercial supplier that can give you the color choices and the mix and match on the less popular modules that are actually quite nice. Now, David, you you say that you actually use these little remotes in other places. So you can like take this little remote and use it to turn a switch to make a switch somewhere. Yes. So they're called Picos and you can get a wall 
box unit. Like like I was talking about earlier with that dimmer, I'm sorry, with the uh, stairwell light. I actually put one of those Pico welts right in the switch box in the wall and, and it works fine. So I'm guessing there's like an adapter box or something that works with that. Exactly. It's just a, it's a bracket you put inside the box and then you put the wall, the plate cover on and nobody will know. Uh, but like, for example, we have another room where we have, we want, it's like kind of a um, room where we do a lot of like the homework room and the place where the kids do all the work. And so we've got one plug in there where, and it's, it's connected to a wall switch. And we want the wall switch on at all times because computers and printers and things are plugged into it. But we also want the ability to turn a light off and on. So in that case, I, I, uh, as I'm getting braver with this stuff, I, I closed the circuit inside the wall. I, I took the switch, I took the switch out of it essentially and wire nutted all the wires together. So that switch is, is always on. But then I bought one of those, um, Lutron boxes that goes into an external plug. It's like a lamp control. And I put that on a Pico that I put into the wall that I just closed the switch off in. So there's still a switch there, but it's not controlling the wires inside the wall. It's controlling the little box uh, that turns a lamp on and off. So now we have permanent electricity to that kind of homework island, but we also have the ability to turn the light off and on. So as you get better at this stuff, you can really open up options. And uh, the other thing they have, and, and then the other thing I did was like, where we sit on the couch and watch TV, there is no switch. So I bought an extra Pico and I literally just stuck it to the wall with the included adhesive uh, out of the way near the, where you sit on the couch. So you can sit on the couch and turn the lights off and on. Uh, another thing I did was uh, in the entry hall, there's a, I had an extra switch as well because I'd closed the loop on another circuit. And I put a, a Pico switch in there that turns off, turns on or off all of the lights downstairs and the stairwell light. So, and the idea behind that is if you walk in the house late at night and you have any concern, you press one button and all the lights in the house essentially go on. I haven't got everything wired to it yet because I still need to buy some more electrons. But when when it's all done, this is going to be great because they can walk in at night and just the, the bottom half of the house just lights up. Well, and so the reverse could also be true. I'm thinking you could take one of these. When you're leaving. Yeah, and and put them like I always exit through my garage door. You you could put one in the garage door and then just hit a button and no more, oh gosh, did I leave a light on? Boom, they're all off. But the front door does the exact same thing. It turns them all on or it turns them all off. And then I bought it. I'm going to put a second one in our bedroom, which is going to be a Pico, which is the same thing. And when we go to bed, if there's any lights on in the house, we can push one button and turn them all off. Or if I hear a noise downstairs and I push one button, every light in the house just goes up. You could also do geofencing. So you can simply set up automation in HomeKit or even directly in the Lutron app if you're not using HomeKit so that when the last person leaves the house, all the lights get turned off. Or when you're getting close to the house in the evening, certain lights turn back on just before you arrive. Yeah, and I want to circle back to HomeKit automation because there's a, there's more to say about this. But just to close the loop on Lutron, the last thing I did with Lutron that anybody that owns a Sonos needs to try this. If if you if you both own a Sonos and have this Lutron system, Lutron sells a Sonos controller that is in the shape of the Pico. It's the exact same shape that fits in a wall switch. Okay, so. Um, we have over our kitchen table, a ceiling fan, like most people. And we've had tape over the switch for years because ceiling fan has a remote control. You can't turn that switch off or it screws everything up. So, so as I got braver at this stuff, I closed the circuit on that switch, took the switch out of the wall, 
and I bought a a, a um, Sonos uh, Lutron controller, and I stuck it in the wall right there. So it's right in the wall switch. It just looks like a normal switch, except you press the button, and it starts playing the last played Sonos music. And you can control the volume. You can skip to the next track, and you can pause it. Uh, my kids call that the jazz button because <laughs> anytime it's in the kitchen, anytime you press that button, because I'm the one who listens to the most music through the Sono system. And I'm always listening to jazz. It, it, most times in our house, if you press that button, jazz music will just start playing in the house. And I love that so much. I can't tell you. I love the fact that I can do it. And I love that my whole family calls it the jazz button too. So it's just a win-win for me. I was originally turning my nose up at the fact that this was so complicated. I, I just want a switch that I can turn on and off. Why does it have so many damn buttons on it? But now I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's got all these buttons on it. I can program it to do all these things, right? I mean, is this going to be complicated for, you know, when guests come over? Are they going to figure out how to turn on and off the lights in the room? You press the top button and lights go on. You press the top button and lights go off. And the middle two buttons are the dimmers. I don't, I don't think it's that complicated. But anyway, so that so that was my and I don't want to make this a Lutron show, but um, when when he started talking about, you know, getting uh, addressing the needs of the entire family, that that is where I finally am starting to make progress. And because of that, now I can build on it. I can start getting into the home kit automation stuff and the sensors and the zones, because now all of a sudden they're in with just the switches. Well, let's let Robert talk. He's he hasn't been able to get a word in edgewise here. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I just, I also wanted to say, uh, I mean, Lutron's a great product. It's not the only one out there. A lot of what we're describing, having direct control from a switch, having uh, wireless remote controls that can do multiple things with lighting, most, many different products can do that. So really, it's that solution of being able to have more freedom of controlling lights, creating three-way switches where they didn't exist. You know, you put a little remote switch on a wall and you've created a switch so you can turn the light off from either end of the hall, even if it wasn't wired that way in the first place. Those are the benefits of getting home automation now. If those things bother you, if it's really annoying to run down the stairs to turn off a light or leaving the house and not knowing you can turn off all the lights with one button, that's the reason to get into it now is to solve those problems. And since I've gone off on this little exploration, I've heard from listeners that have had similar experiences with Insteon, which is another system that does a lot of the same thing. Yes, I've done a lot of work with Insteon. I started with that myself, and it has some of the same benefits. It uses a private radio band that doesn't collide with Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. It also, it's really interesting. It has a dual technology. It makes a network out of your power lines. So it uses a line carrier modem and it uses RF. So it has two networks and it transmits simultaneously on both of them, which gives you a lot of reach and a lot of flexibility. Although when you get into a little bigger systems and they, they also haven't kept up in some other areas, their home kit support is, it exists, but it's pretty weak. I wouldn't recommend it at this point for home kit. Well, Robert, are there any other solutions before we completely leave this topic that people who are looking to simplify the home kit experience, or I shouldn't say home kit, the home automation experience for their families should be looking at the tools that make them perhaps a little more user friendly, but still give the geeks the customization that we want? Well, there is at the advanced end, there's, there is a more advanced system. You can get software that runs on a Mac. 
it's a home automation control system. It's called Indigo, and it turns your Mac into a home automation server, and it gives you a lot of flexibility. I call it the really the uh, the workflow workflow app of the iOS. It gives you that type of capability to control everything with scripts and with if then else logic. The beauty is if you overlay that with these physical switches, you give the non-geeks the interactive control. You can go to the wall, push a button, the light goes on, light goes off. But on your Mac or any other automation software like this, you can create all kinds of amazing things. When I leave the house, turn these lights off at sunset, turn them on a half hour before sunrise, you have a lot of options to build very sophisticated automation that works in the background silently. Now, does that work with like HomeKit and Amazon Echo or is that a, how, how does that system interact with the types of things we've been talking about already? With some products, it works in parallel. With some products, it works separately. In the case of, for example, Lutron, there's t- turns out there's two flavors of the hub for Cassetta. There's the regular hub and there's the pro hub. And the pro hub has the additional interface that allows it to be controlled by this automation system. In fact, I just hooked that up last week and got it all working. So with that proviso, it works together. One of the benefits of a hub in general, regardless of what brand it is, what system, is usually the hub keeps status. What I mean is when you turn a light on or off or you set it to 50% dimming, the hub remembers the dimming level. So the hub is the source of that knowledge. So when multiple systems, voice automation or HomeKit or this third-party software, talk to the hub, it's in a consistent state. It knows the light is on or off. Without that consistency, the systems can fight each other. One may think the light's off. The other may think the light's on. So the benefit of a hub, which is overlooked, is it can be that traffic cop to be consistent and let you use multiple systems controlling it different ways at the same time. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Make your next move and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What's your presence like on the internet these days? I was talking to a plumber recently that came to my house to fix a pipe. And I was looking at his website and it was terrible. And I told him and he says, yeah, I know, but you know, it's just not that important to me. I think there's this general impression among people out in the world that making a beautiful website is an expensive and time-consuming process. Well, the good news is it isn't, and that's thanks to our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name and award-winning templates and more. Whether you're going to create an online store or an online portfolio, Whether you want to make a blog or even make a website for your plumbing business, Squarespace has got you covered. They have an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. And I remember when there were these platforms for blogs years ago and you would get them and every website that you made off that platform looked the same. That's not the case with Squarespace. They have award-winning templates, but they're infinitely customizable. Like if you go to Max Sparking, you look at my blog, that started as a Squarespace template, but I've changed it so much that you would not know what the original template was. 
And that's what Squarespace does. It gives you a great starting place, but the freedom to make it yours. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. As much of a geek as I am, I've never been really good at designing web pages. My website, Max Parkey, had a long history of tortured pages through iWeb and then WordPress. It wasn't until I got to Squarespace that things finally settled for me. Squarespace gave me a beautiful website, and it makes it really easy to maintain. It doesn't take much work at all, and I can't imagine going back. And you won't either if you go give Squarespace a try. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start with a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. Best of all, when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the MacPow users, which we appreciate. So go make your next move and make your next website with Squarespace. You know, David's has got one of his big griefs about, you know, making his family happy solved. Let me talk about one of my big griefs, and that is interoperability among the systems. I have been, you know, I've got the Nest products. I've got the thermostats. I'm looking very seriously at the smoke detectors, so I'm interested to hear your opinions on those. I, I went into the Wemo switches and have had mixed success with those, but I've got a half a dozen or more of them around my house. I've got these hue bulbs. I've got these D-Link cameras. I've got a dozen different things. I've got this folder on my home screen that has like 10 different apps in it from 10 different smartphone or 10 different smart home thing makers in there. And it feels like none of this stuff talks to each other. I mean, it all works and I can cobble something together because I'm a geek, but I feel like when normal people come to my house, they just roll their eyes. I mean, is is there a better day coming for this? Well, there's a different approach to take that can solve a lot of that. As geeks, we like to buy the best of breed. We like to buy the best thermostat or the best light switch or the best uh, smart lock. And we seek it out. We review products. We look at all the differences. And then we figure out how can this all work together. As a regular consumer, if you pick an automation environment first, whether it's HomeKit, whether it's uh, Amazon Echo, or whether it's Google, or whether it's a third-party software solution, and then only get products that are pre-designed and certified to work with that system, you'll end up with an integrated solution. You may not have the prettiest thermostat, you may not have the, the nicest door lock, but you have everything that works 100% together. So if you choose products that are heroes, one-off best products in their category, you're faced with the bigger challenge of making it all work. If you if you don't have to do that, if you can compromise, say, you know what, my Ecobee thermostat, it, maybe it's not as pretty as a Nest, but it's 100% HomeKit, so it won't be any problem using it with HomeKit. And vice versa with IP cameras, with all the devices, if you can first pick the system, and that really gets back to what's the scope are you trying to do? Are you going to experiment with two or three products? Or are you going to automate one room in your house? Or are you going to automate your entire house? Those choices are different. If you're just playing in one room, you may not care that what you have in the media room is not integrated with what you have in the bedroom. But if you want to have all the lights in the house controlled by one system, then at some point you've got to clear the deck, say, okay, I've got to design it. I've got to make some decisions first and then 
execute on that plan and not just buy things left and right that I find interesting. And for a lot of folks, the, the problem is it's evolving. So there may be something six months from now that you really want that doesn't work with whatever system you've you've kind of chosen. And then you've got to make the choice. Do you want one additional app or one additional method? Or do you want to wait to see until your system gets something like that? Sure. And I think the biggest challenge you talked about it in the previous show was the uh, the voice assistants. You may have to pick the choice of music service to match the voice service. If you're on Spotify versus Apple Music, it may dictate which system works better for you because of that tighter integration. Yeah, I wish these guys would just get along and make this easier for us. <laughs> the um, we so, keep, so Go ahead, Katie. I was going to say, we keep thinking that they're going to. I mean, Apple announced at WWDC that they're loosening up some of these HomeKit restrictions. So you don't necessarily have to have the hardware chip that you can do the some of the authentication stuff by software. Um, but that, you know, that doesn't seem to help. I mean, I know, for example, Wemo and the Ring doorbell people have been promising for over a year now that they were going to be HomeKit compatible, but but that still hasn't come. Um, is it the technology that is a barrier to this? Or is it just these companies each want to lock you into their own walled garden? I think it's a little bit of everything. Some of the companies are jockeying for position. Some didn't want to do the custom hardware and now they can do it with custom software. Others want to lock you in. But one thing to keep in mind is these universal standards aren't a panacea because you end up with the lowest common denominator. If you look at even, for example, IP cameras, when you get the one or two brands that are HomeKit compatible, you lose so much functionality that you really have to say, why do I want an IP camera that's HomeKit compatible, it almost does so little. If I keep a separate product with separate software, it can do more of the things I need, more motion detection, more uh, recording options. If you Some of the products that are compatible with a HomeKit or Amazon, they still have their own app. And when you run that app, you find a lot of extra features. In some of the switches, they have the ability to tell you the wattage usage, the energy usage, and that information is not reported through HomeKit. It has to be reported through their own app. Some of the uh, indoor air sensors that can tell you if there's pollution or carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide levels, you have to go back to those apps. You don't get that inside HomeKit. So just wanting everything in HomeKit or in Alexa, I'm sorry, or in another ecosystem, you have to sacrifice to the lowest common denominator of features. Well, and then you touched on it briefly, but let's let's go ahead and go there. What about security? I mean, the the big news this past week, as as we're recording, was the WPA two crack that just came out, and I think um, some of the big manufacturers like are starting to roll out fixes to that. But in order for it to be a complete fix, it's it's got to be two ways. You've got to fix both your routers and your individual devices have to be patched. Um, you know, I, I don't know, is my wall switch here going to get patched? I mean, uh, there, there's huge privacy concerns, and we've seen issues with, you know, people's webcams showing up on the Internet and, um, you, know, you know, all of these things joining botnets because people aren't sure how to lock them down and secure them. Uh, you know, what are the issues there? Yeah, I was standing on my smart scale this morning looking at it thinking, 
you are not going to get patched, are you? <laughs> you know, <I> mean. <laughs> That's a great question. I'd like to take it in two parts. First, specifically on this crack that came out. It's been severely overblown by the media. The actual WPA2 has not been cracked. There's been a, an attack, theoretical attack in academic research that shows a way to turn off the encryption on Wi-Fi. Now, the key factor here is the attacker has to physically be within range of your Wi-Fi. That means they have to be in your house or realistically five or ten feet outside your home in order to even have a possibility of attacking your network. Not David's house. He's broadcasting Wi-Fi to the whole neighborhood, I hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Euros for everyone. <laughs> well, even then, the range drops off. The thing to keep in mind is Wi-Fi... In the Wi-Fi transmission, it encrypts the data from station to station. But when you use any public Wi-Fi, when you go to Starbucks or McDonald's or a hotel or a convention center, anywhere where the SSID, that network name, is all you need and it doesn't ask you for a password, your Wi-Fi is not encrypted. So most people today are using unencrypted Wi-Fi in public places all the time, unless they're using a VPN or taking a measure. Yeah, it's, that's why we tell people, get yourself a VPN if you're going to do that, please. And the other aspect of it is Ethernet, which runs through your home or networks, is not encrypted. Normal networking is not encrypted. So it, the movies of the super spies going in the closet and plugging in the laptop and tapping into a network, that's realistic because all networks are typically wired. They're not encrypted. So unless the attacker is within 10 to 20 feet of your home and within your network, this current attack is really not as significant. They are pushing out fixes. If you fix your router, you update your devices. But if IoT devices are not updated, I don't think it's a significant security risk as they're making it out to be. Let's say on the broader question of security, uh, one of the things we've heard, been hearing about HomeKit is Apple actually is does have security requirements. For the longest time, they actually required an actual chip and device to protect the privacy of the user. But now they're saying you can do that with a software key. Um, is that something we should be concerned about? Uh, do you feel like that they're satisfying that concern with some of these requirements? I think it's great that they did that and it, and the software key still keeps it secure. But it's, it's also a little bit of uh, a subterfuge there because most... A lot of HomeKit devices now also support uh, an app directly from the company that doesn't use HomeKit or they support Amazon. So there are other ways into that device. So although think of like three lanes on a freeway, although one lane is secure, the other lanes in are not. So even though HomeKit access to your HomeKit device is secure, there's another door open to come in through Amazon Echo to come in through other software. And that may not have the same level of security. And what should uh, early adopters like me be worried about with those types of security risks? Well, backing up a second, at the top level, what I would recommend more importantly is to secure your home network in general. And what I mean there is there are two things that make your network insecure that are done for you automatically, and you have to take an effort to change. One is there's a protocol called universal plug and play. It comes out of the PC arena originally. It's UPNP. It's an automated way for any device to say, 
I want to leave the door open for someone to come in. So typically, IP cameras are the ones that do this the most because you want to monitor your video from the outside. So universal plug-and-play devices, they go out to the Internet, but they tell the router on their way out to the Internet, hey, leave the door open so people can come back in. And that creates a big security risk, and a lot of the hacks have penetrated that way because it's very easy to set up. The alternative to that, and you could turn that off in your router, you go into your router and there's a setting to disable universal plug and play, but then you have to go into this horrible thing called setting up manual port forwarding. Yeah. Yeah, you open, a, open up a door for that camera. So you open a door, but it's only for that device instead of any device. When the when the UPnP is open, a hacker could attack anything and have it trigger an outbound link to open the door. So by restricting it only to those devices that are supposed to have that connection, it's more secure. Now, one more layer beyond that, which is what I do personally, and I suggest to clients that don't always want to, is to close the port forwarding also and only use an incoming VPN. So much as you use a VPN on your iPhone or your laptop when you're at a hotspot in a public area, an incoming VPN sets up an incoming secure connection and only allows you, when you're remote from home, to come back into your home network through a secure tunnel. And you use that tunnel to view your cameras or operate your control system when you're away from home. And what's your recommended um, vendor for that service? Well, at the consumer level, the easiest way to do that now is a Synology router because they have a software package that loads called VPN Plus that with a couple of clicks of the mouse, you turn on an incoming VPN and you can use a protocol called L2TP. And that is built into every iPhone, every Mac and every iPad. So no extra software in your devices and you have a secure connection back into your home network. I'm looking for a good guide for Mac and iOS for setting that up. Have you happened to have written one or have come across one? I, I haven't seen that. I can look for it. There is also, I should mention that if you run Mac OS server, you can set up an incoming VPN very easily on any Mac that you're running as a Mac OS server. So uh, typically a Mac mini that's running Plex or doing other things can also be your incoming VPN server for very no extra cost, really. So let's talk a little bit about the ecosystems. You know, we've got the Amazon. Uh, to me, I think uh, one that a lot of people considering or listening are kind of the Amazon Echo world, the HomeKit world, and probably the Google Home world. Um, is there any pluses or let's take HomeKit first because this is an Apple-based show. Is HomeKit at a stage where people can rely on it and start trying to build a system in it? HomeKit is great for smaller deployments. By smaller, I mean uh, one or two rooms of your house. There are some scalability issues and some manageability issues when you try to do a, a large house. By large, I mean 30, 40, 50 devices of lights and controls. It's It works. It's reliable. A very important distinction of HomeKit from everything else is it's one of the few mainstream systems that is completely local operation. It will work without an internet connection and does not rely on the internet for basic functions. Most of the other ecosystems, without the internet, they don't work. 
They go down because they're sending things back to the cloud, even for basic operation of turning a light on or off. Of course, because it's Apple, they don't want to. They don't want to know. That's their whole thing. So they put it local. And you do need an Apple TV or an iPad dedicated if you want to go outside the home and have remote access. But that's optional. With many other systems, the hubs are phoning home and doing housekeeping, even if it's as simple as just logging you in with your name and password that's going back to the cloud to log you in. So a great, great thing I recommend doing is when nobody's home except yourself, go to your router and unplug the internet. Unplug the wire going to your cable modem or your DSL modem, and now walk around the house and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Try your lights, try everything, and you'll be surprised. Yeah, I would imagine there are many things that don't work that you would expect to work. Um, but so, so with HomeKit, I've been, you know, I knew we were going to do this show for several months now, and uh, I, I felt like this was the time for me to really kind of like dip my toes thoroughly in HomeKit because, frankly, there just wasn't that much there for it in the past, and now suddenly we're starting to get more devices. Apple's loosening things up uh, for getting the certification, so more people are getting on board. And um, I've been really trying to use it a lot. And one of the reasons why was because of that ability to flip up to the control center and get the switches. That's part of the reason why my family is now embracing this stuff. Um, uh, with iOS 11, HomeKit has added some interesting recipe type features. But um, it, it to me, it's like if you were talking about workflow e earlier on iOS where you can do almost anything, uh, HomeKit feels like if this than that. It feels very one-dimensional. It's like maybe one or two conditions at most before something can happen. Um, an example of a HomeKit recipe I have is um, if it's dark out and if the front door opens, I bought one of those Eve uh, front door sensors that you just stick on the door. It's a magnet that gets tripped every time the door opens. Uh, then turn on certain lights. So if somebody, if it's nighttime and somebody opens the front door, lights turn on. Uh, that was easy enough to do with HomeKit. Uh, it also has the ability to base it on sensors. And I'll, I'll talk in a, in a minute about the camera I bought. But if you have sensors or even just people's presence in the home, because the home kit knows the members of your family, if you set it up right. Uh, so it's got some some nice features in it. But the interesting thing for me is uh, it, it doesn't feel to me like a complete solution. A, a good example is we have an, a, a Nest thermostat, the very first generation. I bought it because listeners told me I had to years and years ago on the show. We've had it for years. It works great. I, I don't really, frankly, think that the Nest automatic programming works. Basically, on our family, it certainly doesn't. It can't figure out when it's supposed to turn on and off. And we and we disable as much of that as possible. But when you're driving home on a hot day and you know that the house is empty, and in Southern California, the house can get pretty hot, uh, turning on the air conditioner you know, 30 minutes before you get home so you get home and the house isn't unbearable is pretty nice. Uh, or even being able to lay in bed at night and turn it off and on is, is pretty nice. But but I don't feel any burning desire to to connect my thermostat to HomeKit. Um, I mean, how do you see HomeKit working for people now that, that want to kind of go down that road? Well, right now I see HomeKit as, a, as really a solution that's very focused on home control with a little bit of home automation. And there's a distinction there. Home control is the ability to operate 
all these devices and capabilities interactively, flipping up the control center, dimming a light, turning things on and off, but you're taking an action to make something happen. True home automation, and this is why the big systems used to cost thirty to fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, is having everything just happen. You do nothing but normal activity. You walk in a door, you walk out the house, you walk up a hallway, lights go on, lights go off, they go on schedules. They happen through complex criteria, recipes or workflows that are very complicated. I have one I've set up in my home. I call it the Halloween home and away. I have the lights go on if it's Halloween and it's a certain hours and we're open for Halloween. The lights stay on so the motion sensor doesn't turn it off after 10 minutes. So there's about 15 different criteria that decides whether the light stays on or when it goes on or when it goes off. And you can't do that level of automation with HomeKit today. It's getting better. They keep improving it. But this last release over the summer in iOS 11, they added very little. They added more devices, but they only really increased the geofencing and a little bit of the automation. They didn't take it very far. Yeah, and it's never going to go that far that you're going to have a Halloween rule in HomeKit. I can tell you right now. Well, I built that on top of HomeKit by using Indigo on my Mac to create the automation that controls the HomeKit devices. So HomeKit is used for interactive control, but a third-party software solution or server or control system is used for the more advanced automation. How, how does Indigo connect to HomeKit or, or Amazon Echo devices or whatever? I mean, is it is there a radio or is it? I, I'm I'm a little confused about this. Well, Indigo, it's a software app, and it supports anything over Ethernet, anything over Wi-Fi, and it directly has a plug-in hardware for Insteon devices or for Z-Wave devices. So most of the support for third-party devices is through plug-ins, which are either supplied by the manufacturer or by a very open community of enthusiasts that develop drivers or plugins or modules that control things. So one of the modules that's third-party developed will talk to a Lutron Cassetta hub and operate it directly that way. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Jamf Now. You can go create a free account today at jamf.com slash MPU. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash MPU. So you can manage your Apple devices from anywhere with Jamf Now. When you first start your own business, and maybe you're just a solo, it's pretty easy to keep track of your own computers and phones. But as you start to grow and you start to buy more tech for your employees, it gets harder and harder to keep track of everyone's Macs and iPhones and iPads. And then, of course, you have to try to figure out how to secure the iPad that your sales rep just lost. And it can be especially tough when your business branches out into multiple locations or maybe you have people out on the road. Well, Jamf makes this and a whole lot more much easier. You can configure settings, protect sensitive information, and even lock or remote wipe a device from absolutely anywhere. Jamf now secures your stuff so you can focus on your business instead, and there's no IT experience required. You can find out more and create your free account today at Jamf, J-A-M-F dot com slash MPU. And because you listen to the show, you'll be able to start securing your business immediately by registering your first three devices for free. And you can add more for just two bucks a month 
per device. So go create your free account today at jamf.com slash MPU. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash MPU to start registering your first three devices free today. Thanks so much to Jamf now for their support of this show. You are sorely tempting me to try Indigo, Robert. It's definitely for the advanced. Uh, if you if you like scripting, if you like AppleScript, if you like Python, but more importantly, if you just like clicking in a nice GUI on your Mac and saying, "Okay, I, I'll be," I'll admit something. I've written four lines of code in the whole time I've used Indigo. Almost everything I've done has just been recipes saying, "If this device turns on, then do this." Wait 10 minutes and turn on these three devices, then do this. If motion is detected here, then do these things. If it's sunrise minus 10 minutes, do this. All of that programming is done through just click, click in the GUI. Uh, I've never actually had to write lines of code and script to do anything. So if you're going to start, if you're, if you're listening and you're getting interested in kind of going that further down that road, uh, as a user, you're going to need probably more information going into the system. Like I would assume sensors and and things like that as well. So the the system has more information about you to act upon. Is that fair? I mean, is that how it works? Or if if you need sensor driven activities, for example, a lot of things I do are just light driven lights. A simple thing that I do is we when we leave our dog alone, we go out for the day. I have the lights come on for the dog so he's not alone. They come on sunset minus 15 minutes. So for for that, I don't need sensors. I just need the ability for the system to go to the Internet, find out when sunrise and sunset is for this day of the week, this time of year, and do a calculation and then turn the lights on. So, Robert, what are some of your suggestions, best practices? I mean, if you're putting you've put together these systems all day long for people um, where should we be looking at? And what are some tips that people should look at going forward as we, we kind of sum this all and put all the pieces together? Okay. Uh, definitely, as we said earlier, get your Wi-Fi and your LAN network in your home very stable, very solid, very reliable. Pick the pain points, the things that bother you. You're probably not going to go out and buy 100 switches and devices, but pick a few things, try them out, experiment, get comfortable, then step back and say, okay, now that I see how this works, do I want to do my whole house? Do I just want to do certain rooms? And what do I need? Do I need physical switches? Am I comfortable doing it all on an iPad? Some people have their iPhone with them. Some people drop their phone at the door when they get home and they don't have it with them in their house. Do you have an Apple Watch where you can use that as a control point? or you maybe don't have an Apple Watch that you can speak into or operate. So figure out what your environment is, what your likes and dislikes are, and then what your tolerance is for perfection versus usability and capability. A lot of these things work. I mean, let's back up for a second. I've had so much frustration with uh, Amazon Echo at the same time that I enjoy using it. I have about eight of them throughout the house. And there's always times when they're not working right, they don't hear the command, they don't do the right thing, they, they lost their internet connection. So you have to have that state of mind that you're willing to put up with that because 90% of the time you're getting all the benefits and it's enjoyable and it makes things easier. Are there any favorite products or particular systems that people should be looking at? Should they, or anything particular, maybe, maybe not? 
on favorites, uh, as we were talking earlier a lot, I've actually, I really like the Lutron system. I've had a lot of good luck with that, and they're doing a lot of new things with it. I like the Alexa for, I'm sorry, I said the word again, for uh, voice control. I'm not, I know you and David have conflicting views on Siri. I don't like Siri. I'm getting much better results with Amazon for voice control. I also, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of some of the Nest products. Uh, the only Nest product I like is the thermostat. I don't like the cameras because they're too proprietary. You're locked into monthly fees for a video recording and some of the other features, and I, I tend to shy away from that. I, I like systems where you can pick and choose what you want to do. For example, uh, there are there's a standard in video called OnViv, O-N-V-I-F, which is a standardized way to pull video and audio from an IP camera. There are literally hundreds of cameras that are OnViv compatible, and then you can connect them up to a surveillance station on a Synology, or there's another software package on the Mac called Security Spy, and you can do all the recording, all the control, all the video stays on your LAN, doesn't go out to the cloud, and you have a lot more manageability and maneuverability. It's not as simple. You don't get that just plug it in, set it and forget it operation. So there's always a trade-off of how much do you want to do versus how much you just want to plug it in and not worry about it. Uh, that's one of the things I've kind of come to conclude in this experiment where you know I started out thinking, I just want HomeKit stuff. I just want everything in one place. And as I've got into it deeper, I've realized that's not really what I want because the HomeKit stuff isn't quite there. A camera for HomeKit is $200. It's not $50. And it's not all that great once you get it. Whereas like the, the camera solutions with OnViv and some of these other applications are much more mature, much more powerful if you keep them outside of a HomeKit system. And I think one of the things I think where the state of the market is now is there are certain things that you want to have in an integrated system and other things that don't necessarily have to be. Just like I was saying earlier, I don't really care about up upgrading my Nest thermostat to something HomeKit compatible because as often as we use it, it's okay going into a third-party app. And and I guess that's, you know, to go full circle at the beginning of the show, this is early days and I think we're just going to have to to kind of bear with um, the weird condition of some of these you know, multiple systems as we start getting into this stuff. I think the goal should be to reduce 20 apps to control your home to two or three. Getting it down to exactly one is doable, but that gets you back into the traditional high-end systems. They can do it all in one app, but anytime you want to change anything, the dealer has to come out and reprogram it and you're paying service calls and programming fees and that's what we're trying to get away from so the good news is we can get it down to two or three apps i mean how often the other area for example is uh sprinkler control how often do you need to change the timing on your sprinklers from inside another app you can run the sprinkler app maybe once every six months and tweak it so the fact that sprinklers have a separate little app you can live with that. It doesn't have to be integrated into everything. Tell us a couple of your favorite little um, automation things you've done for people or for yourself in the last year that just make you smile every time you think about it. 
Well, one of the things that I like is uh, I'm a little paranoid about security, so I don't like the idea of locks or doors that are controlled from the Internet in any way, shape, or form yet. So for my garage door, I put a sensor on the door so I could tell if it was open or closed because my biggest concern wasn't automatically opening it or closing it, but knowing is it shut. So I took one of those door window sensors and put it on an actual physical hinge. So as the door swings up, it opens and closes the sensor. So I repurpose that into a sensor that I can see on my phone or I can get an alert to tell me when the door opens or closed. And along with that, I went and got a cheap OnViv camera, a lower resolution camera. I think it was like 20 bucks because I didn't need high def and or even higher. I put it in the garage and I have a video camera that I can see is the damn door open or shut. So if yeah. I don't trust the sensor, I can look. Now, I don't need to see that in 4K resolution. So instead of a $200 Nest Cam or other camera, I have a $20 cheap camera I bought at discount. I've done the same thing with a $25 D-Link camera in my garage. Now, in order to access that remotely, um, what what system are you using to see the, the feed? Well, I'm using the Security Spy system, which is a integrated console for multiple cameras, but I have an incoming VPN so I can just turn on the VPN and then run the individual app of the camera. And this particular camera has a web page. I could even just literally go to a web page. So I can go to a, a, a web browser in a on someone else's computer and activate the VPN and then look at the camera. Nice. Any other fun ones you've done recently? The other one that really I enjoy the most, and this is very simple too, is I put door sensors on our backyard and I set up a recipe in the automation so that when it's late at night and I let our dog out to go to the bathroom, it automatically turns the lights on, but it turns on several lights. It turns on landscape lights, turns on several floodlights, and it automatically turns them off 10 minutes later. Because when you're groggy, you get up at two in the morning, let the dog out. I don't want to touch a switch. I don't remember to shut them off. Just open the door, let the dog out. He comes back in and the lights all go off on their own. Yeah. And I know you do a lot of stuff with audio video and we didn't even talk about that today. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but like people that have fancy audio video setups, you can automate a lot of that too. I, I think looking at how much we covered today versus how much is in the outline means that Robert, you're coming back. If you're willing. <laughs> oh, and, certainly. I would be glad to. I, you know, maybe this will just have to be a yearly thing because this stuff is all changing so much. Like one of the things I thought going into this, because I've really been thinking about this a lot lately, is I think I needed a doorbell cam or something like that on my front door. And and there isn't really a good home kit solution. But increasingly, I'm coming to the conclusion that my ultimately my um, my video feed is not going to be part of home kit and it's cheaper and probably better to do it that way. So, so, uh, but, but in a year from now, who knows what's going to be out there? That's the exciting part about all of this, I guess. Uh, totally. In fact, I, I've been working with a doorbell video cam solution called Doorbird. And the nice part is, unlike most of the other systems, the video is continuous. So you could use it as both an outdoor camera and get a camera feed 24 by 7, along with getting its function as a video doorbell. So although it's more expensive when you factor in that you don't have to buy a separate camera, it's still cost effective. I feel like there's so much knowledge we didn't get out of you today, Robert. Are there, are there any other um, 
exciting hardware developments and home automation and, and vendors we should be watching out for? Well, at, at a top level, the, in the higher end, there's a really interesting voice product called Josh.ai, which is a voice system that is intelligent. <laughs> it understands what you've said. It remembers context. If you're in a room and you say, turn on the lights, it knows which room you're in and which lights to turn on. Uh, I don't know how they'll do in the long run, but it's certainly what we all want uh, Siri and Amazon and the others to do is to be smart about where you are. When I say turn on the light, I want to know what light I want. I don't want to have to say turn on the couch light in the family room. I, I just, I'm going to make a prediction that when you come back next year, Josh.ai, which I just heard of for the first time, will be owned by Apple, Google, or Amazon. <laughs> One of those three. Well, just own it. The traditional control system guys are looking at them too. So companies like Control 4 and Crestron and Savant, they're, they're eyeing those. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of those guys buys them up. Well, Robert, remind people where they can find you on the internet, on Twitter, if you are on there and, and all those places. Uh, sure. My Twitter is at SPIVR, S-P-I-V-R. And a good email contact is info at doitforme.solutions. All right. Sounds good. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Uh, we do want to thank Robert for joining us. Obviously, if you want to continue in this conversation, check out the Facebook group. Uh, David posted a question and got a lot of response. So there's a lot of interest in home automation over on the Facebook group. Uh, we do want to thank our sponsors for this episode, 1Password, Squarespace, MacPaw, and Jamf. And we will see you all next week. Next week.